Today we're ending our series on silence and solitude. Anybody glad we're ending this? No? Okay. I think this is the best sermon series ever. No, I do. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, no. I have found it, for me personally, very enlightening. Thank you. For that. Yeah. Okay. You see, I've come every Sunday. You are one of the most honest people I know. Like, you're literally in front of everybody. I love that about you, uh, Annette. Um, we are. And, and, yeah, we could talk about it forever. And, you know, the reality is uh, there are a number of you who've taken this seriously and you've actually started incorporating it in your life. And I know that there's others of us who are just kind of like, eh. Um, and then I imagine there's some others of us kind of in between. Um, today's the last sermon, which means I always, I, FYI, you guys might not know this. So the last sermon of a sermon series, I always struggle because on one hand, I want to like say all the things I didn't say. So it winds up being like a fire hydrant experience. <laughs> and then there are other times when I go, no, what is like the one last thing I want to leave with them? And today we have communion afterwards, so I want to try and kind of manage it short so that we have ample time for communion as we engage. Um, so up front, I'm going to do two things uh, a little bit different. Uh, first, let's, let's, let's talk about what we've meant when we said silence and solitude. So, solitude is the practice of um, being absent from people and things in order to attend to God. It's a practice, which means it's a discipline. And Dallas Willard said it is probably the most challenging discipline for us Christians in America or in, in the West. Can I just say something real quick before we move on? So, six months ago, this is why I love our church family. Six months ago, a prayer team was praying for me as I was kind of wrestling. And one of the women, I'm just going to call you out, Shannon, Shannon Crable, was praying for me. And she just goes, Father, I just pray that Pastor Peter would know the difference between solitude and isolation. See, see, see? And I was like, damn, that's so good. That is so good. That had to be from Jesus because it just sums it up, doesn't it? Solitude is being asked from people and things in order to attend to God. Isolation is being absent from people and God. Isolation and secrecy will kill any relationship. Let me say it again. Show me a marriage where there is isolation and I'm not totally transparent and truthful with you. That is toxic mix for any relationship, including God. Secrecy. Isolation. That's why Satan tries with all his might to get you isolated and secretive about what you're going through. So some of you are sitting there going, solitude? I love solitude. I'm doing it all day, every day. It might be isolation. And that's dangerous. Then there's uh, silence, which is quieting every inner and outer voice to attend to God. And silence deepens, I said. 
the experience of solitude. Uh, I'm going to be vulnerable with you this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up for all you to see what I hear, the voices, inner voices that I hear when I am silent. And this is why most of us don't want to be silent and want to be distracted. I hear stuff like this. Am I really worth anything if I'm not out there constantly proving myself? Anybody else hear that inner voice? Here's another one I hear. Who am I when I'm not busy doing things that tell the world who I am? Here's another. Why is it so hard to stop the frantic pace of my life, even when I know it's hurting me and the ones that I love? I just keep going, going and going and going. Here's the next one. What do I do with this pain and sadness? You bottle up emotions, it'll leak. And it'll affect those around you. You numb your emotions. You numb emotions, period. You don't just numb anger, bitterness, and sadness. You numb joy and love and gratitude. You don't selectively numb emotions. What is true about and real in my relationship with God? And what is merely an illusion? Things that I would like to believe are true but really aren't. Here's another one. This is hard for me to admit because I'm a pastor for crying out loud. Is God really enough to satisfy the loneliness, the emptiness, and the longing of my soul? Is God really enough? Susie, you know what I'm talking about? And then this, can this be all there is to life? Have I ever shared with you guys, I'm like the most discontent person on the face of the planet. Anybody else? I don't, I, I just can't sit still and just, I don't, Constantly, his elders, his elders, his elders. Drives my wife crazy. See, these are questions that have rocked my world in solitude and silence. And I'm realizing when I'm quiet and alone, my motives aren't always as altruistic as they seem. When I'm quiet and alone, I realize much of my work is to prove myself and prove my worth to other people. I don't want to see myself as I am. That's why we shun this. But for there to be true transformation and change, it begins with rigorously, honestly seeing yourself as you are. We have to. You could live in denial for the rest of your life. Or you could see us selves as we are. Allow God into that space and have him heal it. Please do understand why this is so hard. It's not just because you're busy and lacking time. This is us being stripped of our false self. So we could be authentic and real. Um, So this is going to seem weird, but I I need to... (laughs) I need to really quickly go over so practically how we do this because I realized I said in the first sermon and then like for the last four sermons, I didn't say anything. So people are walking out going, how do we do this? So I realized like I'm going to spend like two minutes talking really quickly about how and then I need to finish, okay? 
So first thing I said was, uh, in order for you, and if you've been here for the last four weeks, you know that this is going to be critically important. One is identify your sacred place and time. You need to schedule it in advance. Talked to a guy in my men's group yesterday who said, I basically have said to myself, I'm going to do this on solitude when I come home from work, help my wife, put the kids to bed, and at 9.30 in that chair is when I'm going to do it. Boom. And he said, unless I do that, and until I do that, if you do not, if you get up in the morning and go, well, sometime today, it will never happen. If you get up in the morning and go, you know, I don't know, I don't know where, but I'm going to, it'll never happen. You have to go when and where, and am I going to get away? Two, um, begin with the modest goal, okay? Don't be a hero. Don't be like, I'm going to do this for an hour. No, you won't. Start with like two minutes or five minutes, maybe seven, and gradually work. Don't be a hero. Don't be some spirit. Most of us, if we could sit there and quiet, silence for five to seven minutes and begin there, you'll begin to see radical shift in your heart. Third, settle into a comfortable yet alert posture, self-explanatory. Uh, Four, ask God to give you a simple prayer that expresses your openness and desire for God. And one of the prayers that I pray is simple things like, come Lord Jesus. Helps me focus. Come Lord Jesus. Or Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Sometimes I just do the breathing exercise. Breathe out. (sighs) I can't. (sighs) Breathe in the spirit of God, but you can. Simple prayers to help you focus. Then, close your time in silence with the prayer of gratitude for God's presence with you. Sometimes I just end with the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the last thing I said was this, right? I said, resist the urge to judge yourself or your experience in silence. And this is maybe the most important thing, is that we need to get to a place where the point, listen very carefully, because it's tied to today. The point of silence and solitude is not to get something from God. It's not to go, because we're so trained. It's not to get something from God. But here's the amazing thing. You ready? Even though the goal of silence and solitude is just to breathe with God, just to be present with God, I found that it's in that space of simply just wanting to be present with God that guidance often comes. In my life, when I've grabbed for guidance or reached for guidance, or I go, I need, it rarely comes. But it's in those spaces when I've surrendered, when I've simply said, I just want to be in your presence, I just want to be here, guidance comes. Another way to put it is, I realize that I hear a lot about what God has to say when I'm quiet. Today, as we end uh, Silence and Solitude, I actually wanted to, what I just talked about, is that the wonderful gift of silent solitude is that even though we go into it just to be present, just to be with, it's in that space that God's guidance and clarity comes. It happened to Elijah. We've been talking about Elijah, and if you have not been with us, I need to just quickly catch you up, and then we need to jump in. We've been looking at the life of Elijah that James, gospel writer James, describes as a man just like us. And what made Elijah extraordinary was that he had this habit, this pattern that he nurtured into his life, which was going into the desert, 
where he spends time in silent solitude being shaped by God, then comes out of the desert into the world. 1 Kings 17 is where we looked at him going into the desert by God. And then 1 Kings 18 is that famous scene in Mount Carmel where he goes battle with 450 prophets of Baal. He expends enormous energy. He's at the apex of his career as a prophet. Then 1 Kings 19 is where we've been for three weeks. So I'm going to just read 1 Kings 19, make a couple notes of what we've already talked about because I need to move. And then we'll come to that point where Elijah gets guidance and he hears the voice of God. 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a room tree, but sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Just a beautiful picture of God cares for a despairing, despondent, suicidal prophet. Then verse 8. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. Everybody, just look up here for a second. I I just need to pause here. Elijah not only willing to walk away from people and places and things. For the possibility to encounter God. Elijah is also willing to, listen to this, walk into the vast emptiness of the desert. To find what he's looking for. Mount Horeb is surrounded by desert. Not one, not two, not three, not five or six desert before you get to Mount Horeb. Elijah for 40 days and nights travels through the desert to encounter God. Now guys, we've been saying for four weeks that the desert is a metaphor for why? The desert is a metaphor for that place that we go to. By the way, we even in our vernacular say things like what? I went through the desert experience. Anybody? I've gone through the wilderness experience. What is it? What are we saying? We're saying the desert experience, the wilderness experience, it's that place where that part of us that lives for people's approval and affirmation goes to die. The desert is that place where we are dependent on noise and distractions because we don't want to deal with the genuine pain and sadness of our lives that that part of us goes to die. The desert and wilderness is that part of us that wants to be in control of people and God and outcomes. That part of us goes to die. The desert is that place where many of us who are living our lives and our strength and my determination, I'm going to make it happen. The desert is that place where we hit that wall. The desert is that place that everybody has to travel through to encounter God. But we avoid the desert like the plague, don't we? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? We numb the desert experience. 
with noise, people, substance. We numb it. We distract ourselves. And I found this little nugget of a quote. It's a little brutal and honest from one of my favorite authors. Listen to what he says. Our spiritual journey must lead through the desert or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. You need to know that there's some people in our congregation right now that are emotionally like weeping through this because you're in it. If you do not go to the desert, you will never die to your false self that says, I will do life on my own and I will make it happen. But the end of the quote is not there. (laughs) It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. Hmm? It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and bubbles we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters our soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. And then he says the following. In the desert, we must trust God or die. Yeah, I told you it was going to be brutal. Let me put it this way, everybody. Even though the process of being emptied is painful, being emptied is a prerequisite to being filled. You cannot be filled by the presence of God unless we are emptied of the things that we hold and cling to, like our idols and our false gods and ourselves. If you are going through the desert experience, God is with you. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. Elijah travels through the desert until he arrives at Mount Horeb. Briefly talked about this last week. Remember what Mount Horeb is? There's another name for it. This way, well, this way it's called Mountain of God. Another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the place where God appears to his people and makes covenant promises. The place where Moses receives what? The Ten Commandments. And the place where Moses sees God appear in a burning bush. And the place, I love this. This is the thing I love about the Bible. Where Moses says, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I want to see, anybody, by the way, lately craving that? I want to see you, God. I want to see your glory. Anybody? Anybody? Moses, I want to see you. And God says this. God says what? God says, I want you. Here's the thing you need to know. The word cave, the word cave in Hebrew. We see the word cave. There's a more generic word for that. And the generic word that some translations use is a cleft. It's just an opening. And God says, Moses, I want you to go into the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. And some scholars believe that where Elijah is, is in the same cleft of the rock. (laughs) 
the place that Elijah goes to is the one place he knows on the planet he could encounter God. And I said this last week, and I'll briefly mention it. We need to move on. In his tiredness, exhaustion, disillusionment, unlike many of us when we're in that place, we don't run to God and community. What do we do? We run from. Just this week, I had a conversation with somebody I hadn't seen in a while, and they said, when I'm ready, I'll come back. What do you mean ready? When I'm doing better. When I've got my act together, then I'll re-engage. There's something in us that says, when I'm good, when I've sanitized my life, when I'm put together, and Elijah says, just as I am, good, bad, ugly. And is this encouraging to you? With my burned out attitude, blaming behavior, just as I am, I'm going to go to God. Now listen to what happens in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? And by the way, when God asks you a question, it's not because he's trying to get information from you. He's trying to give you information. Verse 10, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And the word gentle whisper in Hebrew literally means the sound of sheer silence. That right there. The Lord came in the sound of sheer. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, by the way, how do you hear silence? How do you hear? Or maybe ask this way, do you have ears to hear silence? Do you have ears to hear silence? When Elijah heard, he hears the silence. He hears the silence. And we'll talk about what that means. He pulled his cloak over his face, which is a sign of reverence and awe. He knows that God is there. He went out and stood at the mouth of the cave or the cleft of the rock. The point here is not that God doesn't come into fire, earthquake, or wind. Those are all the ways in which God showed up. The point is that Elijah is expecting God to come into fire, earthquake, and wind. And God comes in what? Sound of. Let's just pause and draw some principles. Here's the first one. Is that God will often come to us in ways that we don't expect. But when I do that, it's, I want you close to me so you could hear me. God will often come to us in ways that we don't expect. Vast majority of us have no idea that God has already come to us because we're expecting him to come a certain way. God is coming to us. 
some of us right now, but we're totally missing him because we're like, no, that can't possibly be God. Let me give you a couple examples I saw last week. Many of us expect God to come in successes. God will often come through failure. I have rarely met Christians who had a catalytic spiritual experience through enormous success, but I've met many Christians who came to encounter God through what? Failure. That's my story. Many times we Christians in the West expect to come, to come through comfort, convenience, when good things happened. Talk to most Christians all over the globe and they will tell you God, God often comes through what? Trials, suffering, tribulation. God shatters Elisha's notions about how he comes. God shatters the box that Elisha has put in. Why do you and I do that? Why do we put why do we put God in a box? Why do we put God in a box, in a category in our minds, instead of allowing God to be God in our lives? Elijah, as CSU said, encounters God as he is, the untamed God. And that right there is the beginning of change for Elijah. When Elijah encounters God as he is, not as he wants him to be. Let me just spend two minutes on this and I need to move on, especially if you're not a Christian. Do you know that if you walk into a Starbucks, you have 20,000 ways of ordering your drink? There are 20,000 permutations to how you could order. Google it when you get home. Don't do it right now. 20,000. We live in a culture where we could pretty much customize what cars, shoes, anything to our liking and specification. Why buy an entire album? Some of y'all are young and you're too young to even know. Like there was a time when you couldn't, there was, there was a time when there were no such thing as playlists. You bought the whole dang thing. Do you know what I'm talking Stop! Why do you guys do that? It's just stop. Just go with the analogy. We live in a culture in which we basically have said, I will create and distort reality, set my test. Do you know who else we do that with? Maybe we do that with God. You don't think we do? Maybe we do that with God. Maybe we design God. Maybe we create God. Maybe we create God to fit our specification. And I'm going to tell you something right now. If you create and design your own God, and many of you are like, no, that's not me. Trust me. This is the reason why when God comes a certain way, or this is the reason why many of us are struggling today, because we're going, God has to come this way. God must do that. And God isn't doing that. And God isn't coming through. And we've basically concluded either this Christian anything doesn't work, or God can't be who he is. We design and create God to suit our days. Here's the thing. That God that will never change you. That God that will never transform you. Why? Because he is the product of you. Because he is the product of you. A God who is the product of your heart can't change you. Let me give you an example of what I mean. 1 John 1, uh, 3, 19, those are my favorite verses. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we have set our, uh, our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us. Does anybody in here know the experience of having your heart condemn you? 
Does anybody know what it was like this week to have your heart, inner voice say to you, you're worthless. Who would love you? You're a terrible mother. You're a terrible father. You're a bad Christian. Why would God forgive you? Does anybody know? Am I the only one hearing these voices? And what does John say? Verse 20. Whenever hearts condemn us. But here's the good news. You ready? For God, though, is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Is that good news to anybody? That's amazing news. Because what it's saying is this. A God who is the product of your heart will never be able to overcome the condemnations of your heart. A God that you created from your heart can't overcome the voices of your heart that says you're worthless. You're a sinner who would love you. How can God forgive you? A God that can overcome the voices of our hearts is a God who's not the product of our hearts. It's the deepest need we have. And oftentimes, God places us in situations where we come face to face with God. This is how I thought you were. And God goes, you've put me in a box. And unless you're willing to encounter me, the untamed God as I am, you can't experience spiritual transformation and healing. God will often come to us in ways that we don't expect. Secondly, here's the second principle. God will often come in the sound of sheer silence. Listen, I literally said this last week. You and I literally need to create a brand new category in our minds about how we experience God. Many of you, like me, grew up in the evangelical culture where the way I encountered God the best was when I heard a sermon or some talk or biblical insight. Anybody? That's why my Bible was filled with yellow highlights. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. It was, it was a way in which I go, whoa, God was here. Then I went to college where every single Sunday there was a word of prophecy. Anybody grew up in church like that? And unless there was a word of prophecy, God forbid, God wasn't there. God's presence wasn't there. Then after college, I led worship for 10 years. And so the way I encountered God was in worship when I felt the presence of God. And devoid in all of these things was a category in my mind. And one of the most powerful ways God comes to us is in the sound of sheer silence. Is this category even in your mind and heart and practice? In silence. What happens to Elijah? In the silence, he experiences God's presence. He, he experiences God's presence. I've been trying to tell you guys for over a year as we did emotional spirituality that the essence of the Christian life of the Christian life is to live in awareness of God's presence and respond to it. God's presence is always ever present. It's just that it gets dulled by noise and activity and busyness. Did you hear what I just said? God's presence is ever present. It gets dulled though, that awareness, by noise and activity. 
And Elijah, in the presence of God, comes to know experientially as he stays. He comes to know in the depths of his being God's love and God's goodness. Elijah comes to experience what the Bible says over and over and over again about how we ought to relate to God. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't want you to just know it. I want you to what? I want you to taste it. Psalm 109, how sweet are your words to my taste. Christian, God says, I don't want you to know me. I want you to taste it. I want you to see. And in God's presence, oh, how we Christians in the West so need this. In God's presence, Elijah comes to taste and see that God is for him, that God is with him, that God is in him. In God's presence, Elijah comes to see and taste and know in the depths of his being that this God loves him just as much when he is a despairing, suicidal, I'm not getting anything done prophet. That he is just as loved then as he is when he is raining down fire on Mount Carmel. And dare I say, church family, that this knowing, taste, see, is the deepest and most important kind of knowing for the human soul. And Elijah, in silence, experienced God's presence. third thing that Elijah gets is he gets guidance and clarity. God gives guidance and clarity to Elijah. Elijah gains clarity and direction. Does anybody right now need some guidance and direction and clarity about anything? Say amen if you do. That's us all day, every day. Now here's the amazing thing about Elijah it's critical that you understand the order. James, I'm going to talk to you because Carlton's not here this morning. All right? I'm going to talk to you. It's critical that we understand the order. What do I mean? Elijah experiences God's love and goodness and silence, solitude. Then comes guidance and clarity. Last week I had the service, I was talking to somebody who came up and said, I don't want to do the silent solitude. I said, why? She said, because I'm afraid of what I might hear. 
What if God says, uh, go there and do that? What if God says, end that? What if God says, give that up? What if God says, pursue that, even though it's risky? What, Pastor Peter, do I do if in silence God speaks and I don't want to do what he wants? Can anybody relate to this, sister? Of course we can. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here is the thing. If you and I fear that God is a killjoy God who wants to just come and have you do things that you don't want to do just to see you suffer. If you and I see God as a cruel God who does not have good intentions for us and doesn't want what's good for us. If you and I, Annette, see God as a God who holds grudges and punishes for our wrongdoings, who in their right mind would want to hear from that God? If you and I are not assured of God's love and goodness and we are set free because the gospel is holding us, we will not be open and receptive to what he will have to say. Are you hearing me? If you and I are not deeply assured he loves me, he is good to me, he is for me. If we are not assured of that to the depths of our being, we will not be open and receptive to what he has to say. And if we are not open and receptive to what he has to say, why would we listen to what he has to say? Do you see why for so many of us, guidance and clarity is directly related to what do you think about this God? And what do you think about this God is shaped and formed in the crucible of the desert in quiet and solitude? Even as a human being, when somebody comes to me and I know for a fact that they're not open and receptive to what I might have to say, do you think I'm going to sit there and go, well, let me pour out my heart to you. Sometimes I feel like God looks at most of us as rebellious teenagers who are flailing along. And God just goes, I'm going to wait till you just, yep, go ahead. Go ahead, throw your temper, do your temper tantrum. Go, do your thing, do your thing. And finally, when we go, I'm tired. You ready? I guess so. If you and I won't talk to people that are not open or receptive, why would God give clarity and guidance to one of his children who are like, I don't want to be open or receptive? This is why the gospel is such good news. Because here's what the gospel says. 1 John 4, 18. Say this with me. For perfect love casts out fear. Is that good news? 
It is only when we come to know the perfect love of God for us in deep and experiential way that we could truly be open and receptive to what God has to say. And when we are open and receptive to what God has to say, you will be amazed at how clearly you will hear God. And we make it so hard. We make, it's like rocket science. We make it so hard. It's like this massive formula. We, and God goes, no. Get to a place where you're deeply assured of my love. And your fear has been cast out by perfect love. And you come to a place of being open and receptive, saying, Father, Dad, I know you love me. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, said, then go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. Do you know what I love about this whole story? Not one time does Elijah go, tell me what I need to do. He's not going searching for guidance. It just what? It just comes. <laughs> guidance simply comes in the context of Elijah's willingness to be with God and openness and vulnerability. It's just amazing. Let's keep going. Verse 15. When you get there, God says, anoint Hazael king over Syria. <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry. You're going, what's so funny? Let me tell, I'll tell you what's so funny. God's telling Elijah to go anoint a pagan king. And there's no indication ever that this guy ever became a believer or a follower of God. Do you know what God is saying to Elijah? Elijah, hello, I'm on the throne. I'm working it. Show you how I'm working it. I'm going to use a pagan king. No! Yes, a pagan king to fulfill my work. I'm on the throne. I got this. Go chill out and relax. Is that good news to anybody? Is that good news to anybody? We've said for four weeks, if you do not believe that without your help, God could do just fine, you will not be able to get away. We've said for four weeks, if you're not willing to let go of control, because you're like, I am indispensable to this universe. <laughs> there was just confession right there. I am indispensable. Do you see how stupid that sounds? I am indispensable to this universe. And my wife laughed out loud. I am indispensable to this universe. If we don't overcome that idiotic lie, we won't. And God goes, what? I'm going to anoint a pagan king. And have him do my work. One of the things that I love, and I don't have time for this, I'm just throwing it out there, is that when I actually hear God's voice, I get perspective. And you know what perspective means for me? I'll just say this, and then I knew. Perspective often comes in the form of when I go to God, I'm going, God, this is the issue. This is the issue. I know this is the issue. Perspective comes, and God goes, That ain't the issue. Has this happened to anybody else? It's amazing how we go, Elijah, it's Ahab and Jezebel, those wicked king and queen. They're the problem. God going, they ain't the problem, dude. How often do we get fixated on, it's this issue. It's this issue. That's why I'm miserable. It's this issue. That's why I'm frustrated. It's this issue. That's why I'm lost. It's this issue. And in silence, God goes, that's not the issue, child. 
Verse 16, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of John. Jehu, verse 18, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, perspective, all who have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed Baal. Verse 19, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shephat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, which was a way of saying, I now anoint you and call you into the ministry. In verse 20, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. And if you have time, read the story of Elijah and Elisha. The two prophets whose ministry impacted the nation of Israel in time of spiritual apostasy. If Elijah doesn't take time to go into the desert, the direction of his whole life could have been different. In the desert, in silence and quiet, Elijah gains clarity and guidance to his successor as well as what God is calling him to do. How many of you need some guidance and direction right now? And how many of us are making decisions without time away in silence and solitude? How many of us are trying really hard to figure stuff out on our own without the discipline of quieting our inner and outer voice to listen to God? One of the basic assumptions of the Christian life is that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us and communicates to us. One of the assumptions of the Christian life we talk a lot about around here, you guys, is that late in his life, before Jesus is at seven, he says, it's better that I go away because when I go, I will send you a counselor and an advocate who will guide you into all truth now and forever. And we say around here a lot that our relationship with this Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of us is one of a relationship where He leads and we follow. He prompts and we respond. Here's the thing, though. You and I will not follow someone we don't trust. Even my six-year-old child knows this. We will not follow someone we don't trust. And therein lies the issue. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us who wants to lead for us to follow, who prompts for us to respond. But if you do not trust the voice of the Holy Spirit, that He loves you, that He is good, that He is for you, we will not follow. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You will not follow someone you don't trust. So you sit here as I end this sermon series. Peter, how can we be sure of that voice and the goodness of it and the love of it that we could follow him? Let me end with this. Do you know why it is that we could enter into the holy of holies, the God's presence, and hear his voice? By the way, I know most of us just sit and go, yeah, you know, God's voice. Do you realize when you read the Bible what an amazing thing it is that we could enter God's presence? Here's what. Does anybody else want to talk about? Do you know why we can do that? Here's the reason why. Do you know that in Scripture, earthquake and wind and fire are acts of God's judgment? 
earthquake, wind, and fire are acts of God's judgment. What do I mean? Proverbs eleven twenty nine: He who troubles his own house, for example, will inherit the wind. That's a curse. That's a curse. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. And then you remember this story in Luke chapter 9, verse 54? James and John, disciples are walking, and there's a town that's not receptive to the gospel. This is what they say. James and John saw this. They said, Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? So let me ask you this question. How was it that Elijah was able to survive the earthquake and the wind and the fire of God's judgment? How was it that he was able to survive the earthquake and the wind and the fire and enter into God's presence? He was protected by what? He was protected by the rock. Do you remember? It's Elijah and Moses. Go hide in the what? Go hide in the what? shields him. The fire comes and the rock shields him. There's a hymn that you and I sing. It goes something like this. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Who is this rock? Who is this rock church? Say it like you mean it. Say it like it's good news. It's who? It's Jesus. Can we say it one more time? It's Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, Elijah and Moses are brought back from heaven. Do you remember? They're standing on another mountain called Mount of Configuration. And they say what? They're talking about the death of Jesus that is coming to be. Moses and Elijah sees the rock in which they were hidden so they could have a relationship with God. Do you know why you and I can enter into the presence of God and be with the one who created the heavens and earth? Because we too, what? Have been shielded by the what? Rock. And his name is. Is this good news? Then why are you sitting there like, nah? I was jumping up and down for joy in my study. I was like, I can't. Do you remember when Jesus is crucified? What happens when the judgment of God comes down? There is an earthquake. Graves become open. Earthquake. Why? Because the judgment of God is being carried out by who? Jesus. He's taken it. He takes the wind, the fire, and the earthquake so that you and I could be shielded from God's judgment and enter into God's presence. Is this good news? Oh my goodness. This is amazing news. It's absolutely mind-boggling to me that how can sinful humanity enter the very presence of God because Jesus Christ took the fire. He took the earthquake. He took the wind. Jesus was torn so we could be healed. 
Jesus was abandoned so we could be welcomed. Jesus lost intimacy with the Father on the cross and goes to hell so that we, we, Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Our Father in heaven. Lord, I know for me, if this doesn't motivate me, if this doesn't motivate me, God, to hunger after you, to thirst after you, I don't know what will, God, if this doesn't motivate me to say, God, the price you paid, the length to which you went, so that I, so that I, so that I, a sinful human being, could enter the throne room of grace with confidence so that I, anytime, anywhere, in any condition, could simply say, I am here and know that your presence is with me. God, it's beyond my comprehension. It's beyond the capacity of my heart, God, to just even hold this truth together. And yet, so often I look at silence and solitude as a duty, an obligation, a drag. When in fact, your invitation goes forth. And your spirit says, come away with me. Come away with me. Judgment will not burn you because I took it. As we have been doing, church, I'll lead you to just five minutes of silence and solitude. Come as you are in your present sadness as well as laughter. In joy and gratitude as well as doubts and fears. In your hard questions as well as answers that have been received. This time is simply for you to come as you are right now in, in your state of being. There is no judgment there. There's no clean yourself up there. Just as I am. Just as you are. And today as you do, will you envision, some of you if it helps, a beautiful picture of you and I being hidden in the cleft of the rock.
speak gently in my silence. When the loud outer voices of my surroundings and the loud inner noises of my fears keep pulling me away from you, help me to trust that you are still there even when I am unable to hear you. Give me ears to listen to your small, soft voice saying to me, My child, come to me, all who are overburdened, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle, and I am humble in heart. I long for that loving voice to be my guide.